today happens to be uh, Palm Sunday. If you know anything, historically it is the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the great acclaim of the crowds. He was uh, enjoying his 15 minutes of fame. He was the most important thing happening in life, and everybody was excited that he was there. And yet it was just five short days when those same people who praised his arrival turned around and then called for his crucifixion. Now listen, we all know that people are fickle, right? But it's other people, it's not us. We're not fickle, are we? (coughs) It is important to profess with your lips what you believe. It has never been more important for you to profess with your lifestyle. You can tell me what you want with your lips, but I think that there's a song out there that says, if your lips are moving, you're lying. It's true. You can profess cheaply. You possess dearly. And we need to profess our faith With our lips, people need to understand why we do what we do, but we do need to make sure that we demonstrate um, our commitment to Christ by the life that we live. And so today, um, as we finish up up this uh, series on kind of measuring our life, how do we know that we're actually building strong families, building strong disciples? And it, it all comes down to the issue of being intentional about pursuing growth. And so I hope this morning to really motivate and challenge you in that area because I'm just, frankly, brokenhearted to see Christians who have no desire for growth. That's not the same gospel that I read when we think about what Jesus has done for us and we're not even motivated to live for Him. And so today we're going to talk about growing in godliness and exactly what that means and in This is not a can-do sermon. I hope that it motivates you and it encourages you and it powers you up for doing the things that you need to do. But the baseline for everything that I'm about to say is based upon what God has done for us in Christ. We can do nothing apart from that. And so today, we're going to talk about some things that I think are really challenging from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Three simple points. But I think they speak to our hearts related to our testimony and our ambitions to uh, love God and live for Him. We begin in our first point with saying something that will sound kind of hard, but it's this, that God's free gift of grace demands hard and strenuous effort. God's free gift of grace demands hard and strenuous effort. You know, you will work hard for what you want, right? You want to retire when you're 50? Oh, you'll put in the extra hours to get there. You'll get debt-free. You'll eliminate things. Why do we not work hard laboring with the grace of God that has been given to us in Christ Jesus? We begin in verse 5. Look at just the first part of verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith 
We could stop there, and we have, we have more than we can talk about in a sermon just from this first half of verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. For this reason. Makes it very clear that we're, even though we're in chapter 1, verse 5, that we are piggybacking on top of something. Now, I'm not good with numbers, but I know that verse 5 comes after verses 3 and 4. So what is the, for this reason? Well, let's look back. Verse 3. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason... Because God has given you His power and His precious promises. For those very reasons, you will make every effort to supplement your faith. What is this divine power that God has given us? It is the power to be born again. Next week, we will celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That's why Easter exists. And the truth is, if today you are a believer, Christ is not the only one who has been resurrected. Your soul has been resurrected. The Bible says that apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You don't do CPR on something that is dead. You bury it. Yet God, through faith, awakens our soul in a way that we can respond to the message of the gospel. And our soul is revived. It is resuscitated. God gives us the power to be born again. Don't be like Nicodemus who goes, all right, so am I supposed to like get back in my mom's womb? No, Jesus used the metaphor of being born to describe what it's like to come alive in Christ, like he didn't exist before. And now everything is different. And then these promises that he gives us. Here's one of the things that's great, and I think you will agree with me. I am a very different person now than when I first became a Christian. And that's a good thing. I have made progress, probably not as much progress as I should have made. But I have made progress. I can look back and and, and see little baby faith Scott, and now more mature faith Scott, and I can see a difference. Is that true for you too? Okay, now, do you look like the finished product? At least I don't. Well, you know what? You don't either. That's just not nice for me to say, huh? You don't look like a finished product. But you know what his promise is? He's not done working on you yet. That's awesome. Like, I I can see how God has changed my priorities and he has changed my desires. They are not 100% purified. I don't fully look like Jesus. But his promise is that he's not done working on us yet. So because of his power and because of his promise of what he will do, that helps us to purposefully pursue growth. That's what he says. For this very reason. Then he says, make every effort. You know how many times that phrase occurs in the New Testament? Exactly once. Right here. Make every effort. What have you made every effort for? Well, I don't know about every effort. 
I've made some effort at a bunch of things. Make every effort? <clears throat> Here's probably the best, best analogy I can think of. I think I was about 13 years old, and the unthinkable happened. Until I was about 13, Dad was Superman. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't out-throw, out-eat, out-anything my dad. And when I was 13, I beat him in my first 100-yard dash. See, I thought he was playing with me at about 75 yards. And I could see he was working pretty hard. So you know what I did? I made every effort. I took those 13-year-old legs and I thought, just a little bit faster. I've got the old man now. And you, you put a little extra run into it to, to do it. And then dad, of course, as I will do with my own son, says, I was just trying to encourage you. <laughs> you didn't really beat me. I could have gone faster. That's making every effort is when you know, oh, it's close. Am I going to get it or not? Let's just dig a little deeper. What have you made every effort for in your faith? Eh, I go to church on Sunday. That doesn't sound like making every effort. That sounds like just a little portion. If you've got 168 hours a week and you've given up one, that doesn't sound like making every effort. I mean, that's an important thing to do. That doesn't sound like exertion. That doesn't sound like, sound like strain. That doesn't sound like the idea of giving your utmost so he says, for this reason, because of his power, because of his promises, make every effort to do what? To supplement your faith. Now, some of you have a translation that will say, add to your faith. I don't like that. It's not wrong. I just don't like the idea of saying that we add things to our faith. Now, it's, it's just word wrangling. Supplementing is saying the same thing. It just sounds different. It sounds like, here's my faith, and I'm going to supplement it. It sounds like two things, where adding sounds like it's one thing that I'm adding something to. And I, I prefer to say, we don't add anything to our faith except our sin. We don't add anything to our faith. So supplement your faith. Supplement it. Now, you know something about supplementing. You go, there's entire aisles in the grocery store of supplements, vitamins. And so he, the point that he's making is that if God went to great efforts to secure our salvation. Don't you think that merits our great effort to grow in it? Am I crazy? If, if God wants to great efforts, the incarnation, the humbling, for God to become man and, and to be rejected and despised by the people he came to save, there's huge humiliation in the incarnation, God becoming a man. But then he allowed himself to die, and he didn't die of a ripe old age. He, he didn't die of um, uh, an infirmity that might be common to older folks. He didn't have cancer. He died as a criminal. He was murdered. God went to great lengths to secure our salvation. We should, out of gratitude, make great efforts to grow in it. And I want to be clear here, because, because Peter is really advocating for a very active and aggressive and progressive growth in the Christian faith. And I want to be clear, we're not saved by what we do, okay? We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ has done. And, and we don't want to mix what we do with what Christ has done. They are qualitatively different works. What Christ has done is once and for all and unrepeatable because I'm, I'm a sinner. I can't, I've never done anything in my life that is completely without the taint of sin, and neither of you. 
but I'm called to work. And so here's a way that I have always heard it. I, I was probably in middle school or high school when I heard this, and it sticks, okay? When we talk about how we're saved, it is grace alone that saves. Grace alone, nothing else. But the grace that saves is never alone. It brings works with it. We are saved by grace alone. And when you're truly saved by grace, you don't kick back and be like, yeah, I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to chill out. No, 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 no. When grace transforms you, you want to live for God. You don't have to. You want to. Your desires are changing. And so he is calling for this progressing faith. We are rooted and grounded in grace. But that does not for a second eradicate serious effort on your part. It's just making sure that we understand that our works don't contribute anything to our salvation. Our works demonstrate that God has changed us. And I love this, because verses 3 and 4, we, we, I read them, but they weren't on the screen, talks about God's grace. God has given us His divine power for us to have the new birth. He's given us His divine promises. We don't deserve them. He gives them to us as grace. Grace first, and then the command For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. If you get the order reversed, you're mixed up. I'm going to work and then get grace. No, 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 no. Grace for the Christian always precedes the command. The indicative, indicating who you are in Christ, always precedes the imperative. Grace before command. Indicative before imperative. And this is so important. I told you, 85% of people would come to church if they got invited. You know why they don't come on their own? Do you know, uh, newsflash for some of you, do you know what we are thought of by the outside world? There's one, there's one overwhelming word used to describe us. Hypocrites. And the reason serious and intentional, strenuous, focused, man-up faith is so important is because of the critic's perspective of the Christian life. You know what the critic's perspective is? That the typical Christian experience is this, an initial spasm followed by a chronic inertia. So you know what happens? Someday, like you didn't get enough sleep the night before, or, you know, you went to Taco Bell for breakfast and it didn't turn out well for you, and you go to church and the preacher preaches a message and you have this spasm of like, I need to do something to get better. So you go up and you shake the preacher's hand, you pray a prayer, and then there is inertia, nothing for the rest of your life. It's a stillborn, aborted Christian faith. Doesn't make you look any different than the world. For the critic, the typical Christian experience is an initial spasm followed by a chronic Inertia. So if you could go to the doctor today, okay, and he pulls out the little thing that looks in your eyes and your ears, that thing, you know, listens to your heart, and he could do a spiritual checkup today and tell you how healthy your spiritual life is. Would he tell you you're eating a bunch of spiritual junk food? Or would he say, good job, you're taking your vitamins, aren't you? Your cholesterol's down. That's a good thing. Your blood pressure's looking good. You must be taking your vitamins. Would you like to know what those vitamins are? Would you want to know if you could be spiritually more healthy, what the prescription would be? Because that's why God has given us His Word, and that's specifically why He has given us this passage. Second point, getting into this. 
is that following Jesus means cultivating virtue. Now, I choose that word carefully, cultivate. Uh, Can you think of a situation where we would use the verb cultivate? What do you cultivate? What do you cultivate? You cultivate relationships, right? You know, like, you gotta... (laughs) I love to see the lines in my lawn after it's freshly cut, because you know what happens? It doesn't stay that way. You, You constantly have to trim it. Relationships are like that. Like, you don't talk to somebody for a long time. And this is more true for girls than it is for guys. Guys cannot talk for 20 years and pick right up where they left off. (laughs) Girls are like cats, like, you know, there's something's going on. (laughs) You have to cultivate your relationships. Now, if you're a scientist, you cultivate all kinds of things. Um, Cultivate molds and algaes that you can use for medicinal purposes. And that process of growing it is called cultivating. If you have a garden, you cultivate the garden. I said this in the... In the first service, I don't know if there's any Baleses here still. Is there any Baleses still in the room? Wes Bales Sr., uh, I think he likes me. Um, he, I think he's a good friend, but he grows Carolina Reaper peppers. And so he makes his own pepper, uh, what do you call it, pepper topping, seasoning. It is like hellfire in that thing. And so I put some on some popcorn, and I think my tongue completely and totally disintegrated. I'm like... <laughs> like oh my goodness there was nothing i could do to quench that and i know that he grows he grows a little garden not a huge garden but he cultivates that he doesn't want the foxes coming in and tearing it up he doesn't want moles or shrews coming through into he he cultivates that garden which means he guards it and he protects it choosing that kind of um, um organic agricultural verbiage intentionally because guess what weeds will grow in your spiritual life with no effort at all if you want produce, you got to work at it. That's just the way God designed it. You would not appreciate it if God just constantly caused things to happen in your life without your effort. You'd be even lazier than you are right now in your spiritual growth. You wouldn't really appreciate what God gives you. So what do we cultivate? Listen again, verses 5 through 7, First Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. But we're not done yet. And godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Historically, this has been referred to as the ladder of faith. And just as you would have a ladder trying to change a light bulb that's taller than I am when I'm standing on the top rung of my ladder, so I put a little step stool on top. No, I didn't. Um, <coughs> I make sure, like, I got boys on the front and on the back of it, and, and don't, no dancing, no, no jiggling, hold the ladder tight. Because you have to have a solid foundation. And I want you to notice something here. It starts off in this progression of eight virtues by saying that the very first one is what? It's in the, it's in the Bible. You read it. What's the very first virtue? Faith. Faith is the foundation. Okay, now, like, some of you, you're going, well, of course. No, 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 no. Faith is the foundation, not the steeple. Faith is not the end. Faith is not the finish line. Faith is the starting line. Faith is the ground that you want stable to build anything else up on top of that. So your faith, you had virtue. So change, change topic. I... You know, I'm talking about beating my dad for the first time when I was running. Some people, in their perception of how the Christian life works, they get down in the starting blocks of, 
of the, the Christian race, and they get their fingers, you know, you watch the Olympics, they get down, they get those fingers right on that line, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to do exactly what they do, because I'm not going to stick my backside up in the air, but they get ready to go, and they're waiting, every muscle ready to pow, when that gun goes off, and the gun goes off, and they go, done. Like, faith is the end. No, 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 no. Faith is the starting line. And the problem is some people, the minute they step up out of the blocks, they go, I'm done. There's nothing else for me. I'm just going to go kick back, get my iced tea, sit back in my recliner, and, and, and punch my ticket. I'm done. And this says that faith is the foundation, not the, not the steeple. It's the thing that we build on. Everything else that we do, building our Christian lives, is built upon the foundation of faith, or it's worthless. The Bible certainly calls for us to share with people in such a way that we get them to a point where they make a decision to follow Christ. But the challenge is, in the Bible, we're never called to make deciders. We're called to make disciples. You can get a decider who is not a disciple. You will never get a disciple who is not a decider. The Bible says we make disciples, and they have a desire to grow in their faith. So what do we add to our faith? The second thing is virtue, or what your Bible, your translation may say, moral excellence or goodness. This indicates mastery or achievement of some type. So So if I say, hey man, um, I don't know, Patrick, how are you working on cars? Patrick goes, man, I'm, I'm good. Okay, what does that mean when he says, I'm good? That means if I have car trouble, I can call on him, and whereas I may do more damage than, than help, he's good. He's achieved some kind of level of mastery that he's good enough to be able to help others. So when we talk about goodness, we're talking about some kind of moral achievement that we can do good and help others. And so the point here by saying add your faith goodness or virtue or moral excellence is that personal faith is not the end of it. You have to do something. You have to be active. You have to express your faith in some way than just saying, you know, this is my personal faith. I'm going to hide it and not let anybody see it. No, you have to act upon it. It's very practical. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just a personal thing that's hidden, uh, abstract and theoretical. No, it's practical. It, It ushers into goodness into moral excellence you do something with your faith the third virtue that it mentions is knowledge knowledge this is not a comment about trivia they call it the knowledge of christ knowing knowing christ and it's it's about knowing the will of god anybody find knowing the will of god a little bit of a challenge can be sometimes right here's the thing that's really strange is you put yourself into a pathway where you have faith and you are acting on it and you are you are doing goodness you're on a pathway where you're trying to exercise moral excellence guess what happens the more you get involved in exercising your faith and practicing moral goodness it's really funny how this happens the will of god becomes clearer to you now if you just want to like gaze at your belly button and go i don't know what god's will is i don't know what god's will is and you're not doing anything if you're not obeying then knowing God's will is harder. But the more you act out on your faith and do what you know you're supposed to do, the easier it becomes to know the will of God. It it works together. There's a symbiotic relationship related to this. So put yourself in a place where you learn how to do good. 
And the more, the gooder you do, the more you'll understand God's will. It's, it's generally people who are looking for an out to not do the hard things that God says to do who find God's will so confusing. People who are willing to obey, they don't find God's will quite so confusing. Fourth, he mentions self-control. When you start putting your faith in action and you start growing in your knowledge of God, it's very easy to become proud. Oh, look what I'm doing. Look what I'm, look what I'm learning. I'm putting my faith in action. And so that's why he calls for this idea of self-control. It's the idea of restraint. It's the idea of holding oneself in. It's that idea that when you need to exert a little extra effort, you put a little more juice out there to win. Um, if you run at all and have run competitively, you, you know that one of the things that is important is you need to run your race, not another person's race. So uh, Marcy and I had the opportunity to run with some friends back in Louisville. They had a thing called the Triple Crown of Running. And um, I, it was a five or seven mile race. And I had been training for it, probably in the best shape of my life. And I'm running with a buddy that runs all the time. And uh, I'm just ready to go. I'm excited. There's like 10,000 people out there ready to run. And I'm like, there's people older than me. I'm like, there's no way. There is no way Granny's going to beat me. I have to beat Granny. There's no way I'm going to let these people beat me. So they say, go. I'm taking off. I'm like a deer. I mean, my hair's flowing. I'm ready to go. I mean, you can hear the little number bib. That you're, it's flapping in the wind. I'm going. And my buddy Nate is like, bro, you need to slow down. He's like, he, he's like, he like knows internally like what, what pace we're running. I'm like, where's your, they have Fitbits back then, but where's your thing that's tracking this? He's like, bro, listen, you are flying because I can't keep up with you. He's like, you are not going to have anything left. About mile three, I was ready to walk. Whatever the rest of the race was, five miles, four miles, two miles, 100 yards, I was done. I had nothing left in the tank because I did not have self-control. I let my pride and my desire to keep up with Grandma Jones to get the best of me, and I didn't run my race. I ran Grandma Jones's race, and she beasted me. <coughs> why we moved i couldn't even stay in the state i didn't want to ever see her again it's terrible athletes also experience self-control in what they eat what they drink and when they go to bed you think they're out carousing the night before a big event no probably not because they understood their body's kind of like a machine garbage in garbage out i'm going to eat well i'm going to drink well i'm going to get rest back in peter's day there were heretics that claimed that the special knowledge that God had given them had, re had freed them from all forms of self-control so they could be hedonistic without any reservation. The thing that's odd is the Bible, in an unqualified fashion, says the more godly you become, the more self-control you will have. So what are you going to do? Are you going to go with what the Bible says about self-control? Well, what pagans say about self-control? Oh, where are we at? One, two, three, four. Number five is steadfastness. Another word for that is perseverance. People who are unmoved by difficulty or distress. You want to find out what somebody's faith or character is like? You know the best way to figure that out? Put them in a hard situation. You think about this. We have uh, law enforcement officers who every routine situation that they put themselves in could be the last. What makes you show up for work the next day? 
steadfastness. Perseverance. Not being overcome by the evil in the world. Someone who is steadfast, whether it is the world without or the flesh within, has the ability to keep on going. I don't know who said it, but I love it. It expresses the Christian's approach to hardship perfectly. What is steadfastness? Here's what they say. The courageous acceptance of everything life can do to us in translating even the worst event into another step on the uh, disciples' pathway. You take even the most terrible thing that can happen because God has given you a spirit of steadfastness. You can translate that terrible situation into another step on the pathway that God has to continue to purify you. Sixthly, he talks about godliness. Here's what's so strange about this. This whole sermon is about growing in godliness, and it's, it's virtue number six. Wouldn't you think that'd be number one? Or it'd be the last one, you know, the, 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 the reigning queen over all the virtues. Godliness is th- sixth. And what I love about this is godliness is not like some, you know, goody-goody two-shoes kind of thing. He, Peter's now established a definition for godliness that includes virtue, that includes knowledge, that includes self-control, that includes perseverance. So listen, here's the deal. If you're not virtuous, if you're not growing in your knowledge of Christ, if you don't have self-control, if you don't persevere, put that into your equation. What's a compute? Not godly. Godliness means these kinds of things. Godliness means that in every practical area of life, we are aware of God. I need to be aware of God in my working relationships. I need to be aware of God in my finances. I need to be aware of God in my emotions. I don't need to have outbursts of anger. I'm aware of God in in, in my reputation, the reputation of my friends. I'm not going to say bad things about people. I'm aware of God, and it affects everything. Seventh, he says that one of the virtues is brotherly affection. Godliness does not exist where there is not love for the brothers. And there are some people that will never believe that God is love until they see Christians really, truly love each other from the heart. That's where we get the, the word for Philadelphia. It's a group of Greek words. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly affection, the city of brotherly love. And so affection for God always translates into affection for others. John says, how can you say that you love God who you don't see when you don't love your brother who you can see? That's a great question. Lastly, the queen virtue of the entire list is this simple four-letter word, love. Now, it's not brotherly love. Peter's already specified that one. This is agape. And while brotherly love may be limited to those within our faith family, agape is by definition limitless. Self-sacrificial um, action on behalf of another. So Peter's saying, if we're going to grow in our faith, you start with faith. You move on to virtue, to knowledge, to self-control, to steadfastness, to godliness, to brotherly affection, to love. It's all about growth. And I love this because it starts in faith. That's the foundation. In the, or, or the root. And the fruit is love. Love. 
You demonstrate your godliness by love. And to continue with the agricultural metaphor, we have to cultivate virtue. If faith is foundational, that means in our analogy, faith is the potting soil in your life and mine. Faith is the uh, gardening soil. And what is gardening soil intended for? To produce something that is beautiful, either in produce or in appearance, right? Like you have a garden to make something beautiful, or you have a garden to make something to eat. Gardens are meant to produce produce or to produce beauty. So here's the question for you. What are you growing in God's garden? You got faith. Now remember, it's not, the, it's not the starting line. Faith is the ending line. What are you growing in God's garden? It's a little bit different for everybody. And I love how this passage talks about the queen virtue of all of these virtues is learning how to love. We have the opportunity to do something special here this morning. Um, it's kind of fun because I didn't know that the sermon was going to end on love at this particular point. <clears throat> but we have a couple who, um, when they got married originally, maybe uh, suffice it to say they were not at the same point in their Christian discipleship that they are now. Maybe some things that I think with the rest of us, if you could go back and maybe do a couple things over, you might do it a little bit differently. Anybody else there? If you go back, you do a couple things differently. Well, they have asked for the privilege of renewing their vows. So Patrick and Andrew, would you join me up here, please? <clears throat> Sean, you coming? Boy, you need to come out and hang up with me. I need, I need a fist bump. That's all right, that's all right. You can watch the videotape later. Hey, listen, uh, you guys both, act like you know each other, come on. <laughs> there is uh, perhaps nowhere where this virtue of love is better expressed than in family. Um, parenting, uh, there's a lot of <laughs> challenges, but there's a lot of love. And uh, I know both with Noah and with Sean, you want that love to be uh, something that is demonstrated genuinely from the scriptures. Marriage is a place where uh, this virtue of love, it's important for it to be demonstrated. And you know better each other's testimony than even you know your own. Uh, you know how uh, serious Patrick is about following the Lord, and, and better than he does. And you know better Angie's intentionality related to this. So I have, I have a couple things I'd like to ask you. Because I think in our day and age, when we say marriage, that is not a single definition anymore. Um, it has changed. And so I'd like to challenge you with five things that uh, I'll ask you. I'll read a statement, and at the conclusion of each, if it expresses the desire of your heart, that you'll say, we, we do. Okay? Will you acknowledge your insufficiency for this task and seek to be dependent on God's grace to empower you? Will you ask God to develop within each of you a sense of humility to hold your spouse's interests above your own. When disagreement comes, will you seek never to be disagreeable, never to let the sun set on your anger, 
and to cultivate a gentle, godly, and peacemaking spirit? Will you make it your goal to grow your marriage so that it might be considered a faithful example to future husbands and wives? Will you seek to make this union permanent by pursuing Christ above all and the purity that flows from being a follower of Jesus? Well, knowing your desire to glorify God in this relationship, uh, it's my privilege to invite you to renew your vows. So I will read a long statement, and at the end of it, you will be able to say, we do, at the end, I'll ask each of you an individual question, and you can say, I do. <coughs> Patrick and Angie, do you have uh, this man and this woman to be your cherished spouse, to live together after God's word in the holy state of matrimony? Will you love each other? honor each other, and keep each other in sickness and in health. And forsaking all others, do you commit to be faithful to each other as long as you both shall live? Patrick, will you promise to lead her the way that scriptures state that you should? And Angie, will you seek to develop the gentle and submissive spirit that the Bible encourages? Great. Patrick, I'll read this to you, and uh, you repeat after me phrase by phrase. I, Patrick, I, Patrick take, you, Angie, take you, Angie, to be my cherished wife, have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health to love and to cherish till death do us part God has given you to me and I consecrate to him the love of my heart for you I Angie take you Patrick to be my cherished husband, be my cherished husband to, have and to, hold, to have and to hold from this day forward, from this day forward for better for worse, for, better for, for richer or poorer, for richer or poorer in, sickness and in, health, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to love and to cherish till death do us part. God has given you to me, and I consecrate to him the love of my heart for you. Friends, it is my privilege to just say God bless you. There are so many forces in this world that will seek to undo this special union that God has said is important. And um, I know that as you guys, um, even kind of the spirit of this, this message this morning, growth has brought you here. Don't let this be the finish line. Let this be the start line. And so it is my privilege, Patrick, to tell you that you may kiss your bride. <laughs> Y'all don't look. All right. Hey, Thanks. congratulations. Thank you. Love you guys. Congratulations, bro. <clears throat> Don't call the race too quickly. Speaking quickly, let me, let me finish. Nobody plants a garden in order to grow weeds, but unfortunately, if you're not vigilant, they will show up. The challenge is that God gives you potting soil in which to plant these beautiful virtues. And so many people don't make the effort to plant anything. They don't do a thing. They call the race before it's over. So our third and final point is that the difference in destiny depends upon our diligence. The difference in our destiny depends upon our diligence. Listen to verses 8 and 9. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities 
is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Friends, this is a call for us to be diligent and supplementing our faith. Don't rest content with present attainment, but view progress in the faith as a sign of vitality and strength. Do you want said to you, poorly done, my ineffective and unfruitful servant? I don't. That'd be about the worst thing I think I could hear. It says if you lack these qualities, that you scrunch your eyes up so much, you are so nearsighted, you, you, you are so bound by earthly vision, you can only see worldly things that you can't see far enough to see what God's plan is. You have no spiritual vision, you just have earthly vision that whatever is dangled right in front of your eyes, you can see. There's no way for you to keep your eye on the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Do you want to be nearsighted? Do you want to see what God's plan is for you? Do you want to understand the end result of His power working in you and His promises over you? Are you supplementing your faith? Or this morning, would the doctor tell you that your faith is on life support? You've not supplemented at all. My question to you is this, very simply. Are you willing to take the next step? I don't know that Peter meant woodenly or by rote that you had to do this and then progress to the next thing and progress to the next thing. I think there is some value in understanding it chronologically and sequentially, but I think we work on all of them at the same time. Just because you haven't gotten to the point of showing brotherly kindness doesn't mean you're a jerk, you know, because you're still working on knowledge. No, 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 we're, we're supposed to work on all these virtues. But wherever you are at and wherever you see the Holy Spirit poking and saying, there's a deficiency here. Are you willing to take the next step? I'm not asking for you to run a marathon. I'm saying, will you get in the training program for whatever the next step is for you? Here's the thing that's crazy. If you, if you don't pursue these virtues, laziness will sap you of any spiritual encouragement that God intends to give you. You know what happens if you've been working out and you stop? You feel fat and flabby. You lose energy. You don't sleep well at night. You, you, you get indigestion because you know better. You know that things should be working well. And the same thing is true. If you don't pursue the things that God has said, you can't expect to have the joy of the, light, the, joy of the Lord in your life. You'll not be confident of your forgiveness. It says that this guy's so short-sighted that he'll forget about his cleansing for sins. You'll have no assurance that God's actually shown up in your life at all. Because your assurance should be tied to present obedience, not to a past salvation that happened 50 years ago and then nothing else has happened practice these things and you'll give evidence to yourself and you will shine a light in a dark world in a way that is good for you and glorifying to God. What is your plan for growing in godliness? Father, we ask that you convict us. It is <clears throat> so easy to just grade ourselves on a curve, assume that we're good, we're all right, Everything's good. I'm fine. And Father, you call us to a faith that is actively pursuing you. Father, I pray today that if there are any that have aborted the race at the starting line, oh, have saving faith, I'm done. 
that you would provoke them to repentance today and help them to see that every promise you have in the book is for those who pursue, that they have cut themselves off from knowing your blessings in so many dynamic and awesome, incredible ways. Father, you are worthy of our effort. You are worthy of our utmost. And I pray that today you will help us to pursue you with bold passion. In Jesus' name we pray.